0: So we are in Romans chapter 9 today, we took a brief look at the opening verses of chapter 9, actually we sort of scouted out what Paul is going to be talking about here in chapters 9 through 11, what some regard as difficult chapters in the epistle to the Romans, Not necessarily difficult to understand, but for some people difficult to accept. But we said it's helpful to remember what Paul is actually trying to do here in Romans chapter 9. And what he's trying to do is to answer what he anticipates being an objection to everything that he said in the previous eight chapters. You remember that chapter 8 ended on this very high note. With nothing separating us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come. Nothing in all of creation, Paul says, separating us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are secure in that because our salvation is the work of God, not the work of men. Paul was talking about the doctrine of eternal security. But he knows that somebody might object to that, sounds wonderful, but they might object saying that, well, God made a promise to the Jews and apparently he didn't keep that promise to the Jews, his promise was that he would make a covenant with them and that they would be his people forever and yet it appears as though the Jews by and large have rejected Jesus and therefore, Paul, if that is the case... How can we trust that God is going to keep his promises to us? And what Paul does in these chapters is he answers that objection. What he's going on to explain in the chapters that follow, chapters 9, 10, and 11, is that God has by no means rejected his people. And then Paul goes on to give us a proper understanding of what actually is taking place here in terms of God's dealings with his ancient people. So that's where we're going to pick up today. We're actually going to get into the meat of the argument. So if you have your Bibles, please be so kind as to open them up to chapter 9. We'll begin at verse 1. And we're probably going to read a little further than verse 3. But in the first part of today's lecture, we're going to focus on just the first three verses. But here's what Paul says. He says, I'm speaking the truth. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Then he goes on to say, and here is where he begins to answer that charge. He said, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's really a stark contrast, isn't it, between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. We said that chapter 8 ends on this incredibly high note. I don't know what the lessons were assigned in the funeral that is taking place across the way, but one of the most popular passages to be read at any funeral is this section of Romans chapter 8. Can anything separate us from the love of God? And of course, Paul's great climax is no, there is nothing. Not even we ourselves, once we are saved, can separate us from the love of Christ. It is a high note But then you turn to chapter nine, verse one, and all of a sudden, Paul is talking about unceasing anguish. Why does Paul have anguish? Well, he tells us very clear why he has anguish. He has deep anguish, verse two, for the sake of his own people. For the sake of his own people. And then Paul goes on to say something even more extraordinary, we'll come to it in a moment. But he talks about, if it were possible, himself being cut off from Christ for the sake of his own people. Now, that was an extraordinary thing for Paul to say. And it's made even more extraordinary when you consider Paul in terms of his relationship with the Jewish people at this point in his life. You all know that Paul started off as a Jew. Of course, he died a Jew as well, but he started off being raised in Judaism. He was not raised in Jerusalem. He was actually raised in what is modern-day Turkey, in Turkey, um, a place called Tarsus. It was one of the great intellectual centers of the ancient world. Um, Paul was raised there, and he was raised as a strict Jew, eventually sent off to Jerusalem where he trained under one of the foremost rabbis of the day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he trained as a Pharisee, which was the strictest sect within Judaism in the first century. You know, sometimes the Pharisees get a bad rap, but actually in their own day, they were a highly regarded part of the Jewish community. And part of that was because in a culture that was becoming increasingly secular and was always under pressure from an unbelieving culture to conform, it was the Pharisees, among all the Jews, who refused to give an inch. You know, they were living in a a world that is not all that different from our own. We're living in an increasingly secular culture. Most of us, looking around this room, were probably raised in a day when most people accepted at least the Judeo-Christian ethic, the Judeo-Christian worldview, that has changed. Most young people who are born today, most young people who are in their 20s and 30s today have never seen the inside of a church except perhaps for a funeral. We're seeing that increasingly young people are not even getting married in churches today. They're going for destination weddings. They're getting married in exotic places and so forth. The church doesn't appear to have a place in their lives. Well, imagine being a Jew in the first century when you were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And the Romans were powerful, they were influential, they were wealthy, And they didn't believe in one God. Did you know that Jews were referred to as atheists by the Romans? You say, well, how in the world? Because to the Romans, an atheist was somebody who did not believe in many gods. And the problem for the Jews was that they only believed in one God. Whereas the Romans believed in a multiplicity of deities. They had a God for everything. They had a God for the door hinges. They had a God for the compost pile. There was a God literally for everything. And the Jews didn't believe that. And so there was tremendous pressure on the Jews throughout their history, not just with the Romans, but when they were in captivity in Babylon, when they were in relationship to the Assyrians, there was always pressure to conform, to give an inch here, to give an inch there. And it was the Pharisees who said, we will not give an inch. God's law is clear and we will remain faithful. And they were. Now, sometimes that fidelity turned into legalism which became a problem. But they were highly regarded because they were courageous and willing to pay a price for their faithfulness. Paul was... Raised as one of them, trained as one of them, and was zealous for the traditions of his ancestors to such a degree that, you know, Paul went out and persecuted the church. The book of Acts records the fact that Paul went to the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism, was deputized by them to go out and round up these people the followers of the way, as the Christians were called at that time, to round them up and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial and for execution. And Paul was good at it. He's the man who presided over the death of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. We're told that he whipped the people into a frenzy. And they rushed upon Stephen, stoning him, pummeling him with rocks, And all the while they laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. Now, don't get into your mind the idea that at this point in his life, Paul was just sadistic. That he just liked to hurt people. You know, unfortunately there are people who are mentally unstable and take delight in that sort of thing. That was not the case with Paul. No, Paul believed that he was doing a service to the Jewish nation. The Jews were to be a light to the world, a light to enlighten the Gentiles. Theirs was the pure religion, the truth that had been handed down to them. And here were these Christians saying that a Messiah had come among them. And Paul saw that Christian gospel as, at this point in his life, a deceit, a damnable deceit, something that needed to be stomped out, that needed to be cut out like a cancer. And he was intent on doing it. He thought he was serving God. But he soon discovered that he was mistaken because as he was heading up to Damascus, 110 miles north of Jerusalem to round up some Christians who had fled to that place. You know, it's like a wildfire. This, this whole movement was spreading everywhere. And, and, and what Paul wanted to do was to stamp it out, and what he discovered was that every time he tried to stamp it out like a wildfire, the only thing that he did was succeed in spreading it. I, I love the way the book of Acts describes it. He's going 110 miles north to Damascus to get the Christians, and God takes Philip, the early deacon, and sends him on a road going south out of Jerusalem where he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch, shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch takes the gospel down to Africa. So Paul's going north to stamp it out, and God is spreading it down to the south. And that's what Paul discovers. He discovers on the road to Damascus when he encounters the risen Jesus Christ that the very one that he thought he was serving, in fact, he was persecuting. And the very people that he was rounding up for execution were actually the true followers of God. And Paul's life was radically changed. I always tell people, let that be an encouragement to you if you have family members or loved ones who are not believers and you think, I don't know what it will take to bring them to their senses or to their knees because let me tell you something, if God can do that with Paul, he can do it with your loved one. Well, Paul was radically transformed. It took him a while to understand fully the implications of the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, but once he grasped it and he had a keen mind, he became not any longer the greatest persecutor of the church, but its greatest defender. He who had been willing to stamp out the movement was now willing to suffer for it even unto death. But that changed his relationship with the Jewish people. It changed it dramatically because they now began to regard him as their greatest enemy, as a traitor. Now we all know, if you, if you think of the word traitor and you had to come up with one person and say, oh, that person was a traitor, who's the first person you think of, for example, from American history? Oh, everybody says it, Benedict Arnold, of course. And we even, we even use that as a byword. We say, oh, well, you're just nothing but a Benedict Arnold. But well, you know the story of Benedict Arnold. Many people don't know the story of Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold started off as a general in the Patriot Army and, quite frankly, one of the most successful generals in the Patriot Army. A highly capable leader of men. But a man whose accomplishments and victories, in places like Saratoga and so forth, were overlooked. And other people were promoted, lesser people, people with lesser abilities were promoted over him. And that little seed of bitterness began to germinate and grow until eventually it produced a poison fruit And he decided that if he wasn't appreciated by the patriots, perhaps the British would appreciate him. And you all know the story. He tried to give the prominent post, the strategic post of West Point to the British. And the Revolutionary War might have come out very differently had he been successful. And so this man who had been, what made Benedict Arnold so terrible was not just that he had sided with the British, but that he had once been a patriot and zealous for the patriot cause. And now he is a villain of American history. That was the Apostle Paul in the eyes of the Jews. They hated him. He had turned on them. He was the Benedict Arnold, the traitor And over the course of his life, Paul suffers as a result. Every place he went where he would preach the gospel, you read in the book of Acts, Paul was traveling from place to place preaching the gospel, preaching to Jews and Gentiles. It wasn't the Gentiles that stirred up opposition against Paul. Generally speaking, now there were exceptions to this, but generally, at least in those early days when he was preaching and there it was a mixed congregation, it wasn't the Gentiles that were persecuting Paul. It was the Jews. He even talks about this when he's writing to the Corinthians. He talks about five times, he says, I was beaten. 30 lashes or something like that. Five times, he says, at the hands of the Jews. His own people Turned against him and they hated him. So bear that in mind as we read again these words, extraordinary words for Paul to speak. Verse 2 I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. And cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jews there. His brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now most of us would have said, you know... I'm, I'm brushing the dust off my feet. Remember Jesus said that to his disciples one time? He said, go out and preach the gospel and go into a town. And if they refuse to hear your message, go ahead and brush the dust off your feet. Abandon them to their fate. You would have thought that that's exactly where Paul would have been. Hey, listen, I, I <laughs> I'm trying to share with you the good news, the gospel. You don't want it? Well, that's fine. I brush the dust off my feet. I abandon you to your fate. I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles and that's going to be... That But Paul says he has unceasing anguish, regardless of what they had done to him, regardless of how they regarded him. He had anguish in his heart to such a degree that Paul says something here that it's it's almost unimaginable that Paul would even say it. He said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. That's the literal translation, incidentally. Accursed and cut off from Christ for their sake. That's an amazing thing to say. Could you say that about anybody? Could you say that for the sake of another person, you would be willing to be cut off from Christ for all eternity? What Paul is basically saying there is he's saying, look, if it was possible, I'd be willing to be damned that my people might be saved. I think that's one of the sure signs of a change that had taken place in Paul's heart. That he had such compassion, such concern for the lost, even those who regarded them or regarded him as their enemy. Now, I think Paul speaks those words because... The argument that's being made here, of course, is that God has broken his promise to Israel. And Paul wants to say, look, that's not necessarily the case. And, and I think he wants to assure his audience that he's not just beating up on the Jews. You know, there's been periods in the life of the church when anti-Semitism has been prevalent When people have looked down on the Jews and justified persecuting the Jews, even Martin Luther, I'm sorry to say, the great reformer at times, was very anti-Semitic when it came to the Jews and blamed them for the death of Christ. Somehow the Romans got completely overlooked in the process. And there have been periods like that in the history of the church. Certainly the Nazis in the 1930s and the 1940s justified the persecution of the Jews for this very reason. They said, well, look, they were the ones who killed Jesus. Jesus. So there have been those periods in the life of the church when it was there. But Paul is saying, look, he's not against the Jews. As a matter of fact, he said, I'm for the Jews. My heart breaks for the Jews. I, too, am a Jew, and there's nothing more that I want than for them to be saved. I would even myself be willing to be cut off. Now, that sounds like hyperbole to us, but actually, what lies behind this, I'm certain, is a story that most Jews would have understood, It has to do with Moses. So what I'd like you to do is keep your finger here in Romans and turn back to Exodus. Not a hard book to find. First book of the Bible is Genesis. Exodus comes next. So second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. And I'll fill in some of the details here. But I am certain that this is is what's lying behind Paul's statement there. Exodus chapter 32. You probably know this story. Many people are somewhat unfamiliar with the Old Testament. I was having lunch with somebody yesterday, a great guy, a dear friend, a brother in Christ, and he openly admitted, he said, I, I, I confess to you, I don't like the Old Testament. And he said, it's, it's not because I don't like what it teaches. He said, it's just, it's, it's just so unfamiliar to me. We're, we're very familiar with the New Testament, generally, We know the story of Jesus and his disciples and so forth. The Old Testament is so enormous, and it covers such an enormous period of time. And, of course, Jewish culture and the, the other ancient peoples, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, those cultures are so foreign to us that we have a hard time relating Well, we mustn't forget that the Old Testament is the word of God, too. And by the way, you don't encounter one God in the Old Testament and another God in the New. Sometimes you hear, well, the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. The New Testament God is the God of love. You want to hear a shock? You want to receive a shock today? Here's something shocking for you. There are more references to God's wrath in the New Testament than there are to his love. How about that? It's the same God from Genesis through to the end of the book of Revelation. The Bible is the story of God's dealings with his people in history. All of history. But this, at least, is one story that I'm pretty certain you you know, at least in part. Uh, What had happened, of course, is that God had led his people out of their captivity. They had been in Egypt for 40 years. They had been making bricks without straw. They had been... Under the lash, the the Egyptians had been very cruel to them. And God had raised up a champion in the person of Moses to deliver them from their captivity. And you know the story how God brought down the plagues upon the Egyptians. And Moses went with Aaron and they confronted Pharaoh and demanded that God let the people go. And, of course, Pharaoh was not about to do that. Who were these upstart Hebrews that they should demand anything of him? And what happened was that God rained down a series of terrible plagues, the worst plague being the last one, which was the death of the firstborn. And finally, what happened as a result of the Passover was that Pharaoh relented and the people were set free and they began to travel out of Egypt into the wilderness. And then Pharaoh had a change of mind. I'd like to say he had a change of heart, but that was not the case. He had a change of mind, and he decided that was not going to happen. He was going after them, and you know that God delivered them in that great moment there at the Red Sea. And once they were delivered, he led them out into the wilderness. God supplied food for them, manna from heaven, water from the rock. He continued to provide for his people. And then eventually, God decided to give them a law to explain to them how they were to live, how they were to be different. He had delivered them from something, from captivity, but he had delivered them for something that they might bring law and order to the world, even to the pagans. And so while they were out there in the wilderness, Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, up on the top of Mount Sinai, and he was up there, we're told, for 40 days Meanwhile, the people were down there in the valley below, and the people became a little frustrated. You know, days turned into weeks, and weeks began to turn into months, and Moses had gone up, but he hadn't come down, and they're just sort of marking time, not knowing what to do. And, 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 and so they come to the guy that's been left behind, Aaron, who's in charge, Moses' brother, who's the high priest, and they said... Where's Moses? And Aaron said, I I don't know. And they said, well, well, we don't know either. For all we know, he fell into a hole and he's not coming back at all. And here we are, stuck out here. Are you going to lead us? Well, I don't know. I'm not the one that's supposed to lead. Well, somebody's got to lead us. Moses is up there communing with who knows who, but we need somebody to guide us, make for us a God. And so Aaron in a moment of weakness. I don't know if you recognize this, but sometimes positions, people that are in positions of power tend to be weak. Maybe you have experienced that, but I have experienced that. And this is an example of a person who was weak in this position of authority that he had. He was weak, he was vacillating, he didn't know what to do. These people were troublesome, they were arguing. And so he decided to relent. He told them to take off all of their jewelry. They put it into a pot, and they fashioned out of this, this golden calf. I, I, <laughs> it's almost humorous when you read the story. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but read it sometime, because it's, it's almost humorous, because you know that Moses is up there receiving the law, and While he's up there receiving the law from God, the first table of the law, God is writing it with his own hand. All of a sudden, God says, Moses, you need to get back down there. He cuts off the giving of the law, and he says, you need to get back down there in the valley, your people. I love the fact that God has said, they're your people. They were my people up to this point, but now they're your people, Moses. You get down there because your people are down there doing things that they ought not to be doing. And so Moses starts down the mountain, he can't see, but God being omniscient can see and know all things. Moses gets halfway down the mountain, what does he find the people doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. Now he's got the table of the law in one hand, and and, and what does the law say? The very first commandment is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall have no other gods before him. You shall not make any graven images. And there they are, worshiping this golden calf. And it's a calf. Now, you understand, the Egyptians had a god that was a bull. A strong, powerful, you know, sort of like the Merrill Lynch bull. You know, that that sort of image. But they didn't have enough gold for that, so all they got was a calf. (laughs) But but they're turning to this calf. And and I love the way Moses gets down there, and, and he goes, Aaron... I left you in charge. I've been gone for a few days. What in the world is going on? And this is Aaron's explanation. I'm not lying. You can read it in the text. Aaron says, well, Moses, now you know these people. You know, they're a troublesome, difficult, stiff-necked people, Moses, and and I was trying to hold things together, and you're up there on the mountain communing with God, and I'm down here, and it got really scary, and all I know is that I told them to take off their gold and throw it into the pot, and this calf popped out. (laughs) That's what he says. We threw it into the pot, and this calf popped out. And Moses is so angry at this that he throws down the tablets and they are broken. And it's a symbol of the fact that the people, even before they'd received the law, had already broken it. Now, I left out one little detail. When God told Moses to get down there and deal with the people, he said, after all I've done for them, they have turned on me this. Therefore, my wrath shall burn against them, and I shall destroy them. For the wages of sin is what, folks? Death. That's what they deserved. After all that he had done, and God's wrath, his justice is inflamed, and he says to Moses, you get down there. My wrath is so enraged, I'm going to destroy Now Moses gets down there, and he sees what they're doing, and he is not happy. He breaks the tablets. He disciplines the people. He rounds up the ringleaders. He has all the ringleaders put to death. He takes the golden calf, and he smashes it down. He has it ground into powder mixed with water, and he makes the people drink it. Yeah. And they drink it, a symbol that they need to forsake the idol. And so they do. But Moses is thinking to himself, I'm not sure it's enough. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure it's enough. God said that he was going to destroy his people. In fact, what God had said is, Moses, I'm going to destroy the people and I'll start all over with you. That's what I'm going to do. But Moses looks at these people These rebellious, stiff-necked, difficult, troublesome, complaining, whining, bitching, moaning people. And he loves them. He loves them. And so we're told that he went back up the mountain to meet with the Lord. And that's where we'll pick up The narrative. Verse 30. Exodus chapter 32. The next day Moses said to the people. You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. For your sin. See Moses understood this much. That sin has. To be paid for that there is a price for rebellion. We don't have to like that, folks, but that's the way it is. You know, when people say to me, oh, I can never believe in a God who would send anybody to hell, I always respond in the same way, oh, yes, you can. Yes, you can. What you're really saying is, you don't want to believe in a God who would send anybody to hell. But you can certainly imagine such a God, that's why you're irritated by the idea. Moses understood enough that, yes, the consequences, the payment for rebellion against God is death. And so he says to the people, in spite of everything that we've done here, I've got to go back up there. God is still a righteous God. He is a just God. And perhaps, just perhaps, I can atone for your sin. interesting isn't it the people couldn't atone for their own but moses thought perhaps he could atone for their sin so moses returned to the lord and said alas this people has sinned against sinned a great sin they have made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will forgive their sin and then there's this dash and most scholars believe there is this dash because what we're getting there is really the conversation as it took place, as Moses recounted it, and it's as though Moses suddenly breaks down. He's in the presence of God. He knows they've sinned a great sin, and he's coming for mercy, but he knows there's nothing that people can do to make up for what they've done. And so it's almost as though Moses catches himself But then he goes on to say this. But if not, if you can't forgive their sin, then please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, let my fate be their fate. Now that's love, that's compassion. But the Lord God said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron had made. God sent a plague, but he did not destroy them. It's a reminder to us that there are consequences for our sin. But even in this, they did not get what they deserved. There was a consequence, and it was severe, but it was not what they deserved. What they deserved was death. But you'll notice that God did not accept Moses' offer. He said, Moses, you can't atone for their sin. The reality is, Moses, you can't even atone for your own sin. God was pointing him forward to a time when there was only one who could atone for the sins of the world. And he had not yet arrived. We'll go back now to Romans chapter 9 because that is what's in the background to any Jew that is hearing Paul say those words. If it were possible, Paul says, I would be willing myself to, to be cut off from Christ, to be accursed for the sake of my brethren. That's an amazing thing for Paul to say, isn't it? Just as though it was an amazing thing for Moses to say. Now, Paul knew that couldn't happen. He knew it couldn't happen because he'd already said so in Romans chapter 8, that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Nothing But he said if that would work, he'd be willing to take that kind of punishment for the sake of his people. Now I think that is very powerful and I think it's an important lesson for us because it teaches us that when our hearts are really transformed by the grace of Christ, when we really begin to realize what we deserve is death and what we receive from God is not death but mercy our hearts should be enlarged towards those who are likewise lost as we once were. This was the attitude of Jesus, you see, who made the offer that Moses made. And this time the offer was accepted. It was Jesus who said, your people, O Lord, have sinned a great sin. And they deserve to be wiped out. Their names blotted out of your book. But I am willing to be accursed and cut off from you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am willing to be accursed and cut off to be a byword that they might be saved. What Moses couldn't do, what Paul couldn't do, Jesus has done, and do you understand he's done it for you? As bad as those people were down there in the wilderness, you and I are guilty of precisely the same thing. Now, you may not have made a calf out of gold, But you and I worship created things rather than the creator every single day, don't we? That was the problem in Romans chapter 1. We worship all sorts of things. You can worship your health. It doesn't have to be material possessions. You can worship your health. It can be the most important thing in your life, and you will go to great lengths to maintain it. But you can worship material things, money, money. Houses, homes, reputations, your children can be the most important thing in your life. Your spouse can be the most important thing in your life. Your happiness can be the most important thing in your life. But whatever it is, all of those things are created things. They are not eternal. And if you have made them the top priority in your life, then you are as guilty as the people down there in the valley who made that golden calf. And you deserve, and I deserve, precisely what they deserve. But there is one who's gone up and stood before the righteousness, the holiness of God, and said, I will myself take their punishment and be accursed and cut off my name blotted out of the book that they might be delivered. Hallelujah. Now, unless you realize that That's who you are in the story. You will never, ever be able to appreciate the love of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the power of the cross. So let me ask you a few questions here. Do you anguish over the lost? Do you? I'm not saying you just don't think, well, I hope they're saved. Do you anguish over them? Do you anguish over your relatives? Well, that's encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) Grandchildren. Grandchildren? Children? How about your enemies? Do we anguish over our enemies? Well, Paul anguished over his enemies the Jews hated him. They're trying to kill him. Moses anguished over his enemies. Sometimes those people were his enemies. I, I will never forget Moses's response. You know, when he encountered God in the burning bush and God said, Moses, I have chosen you. I have seen the suffering of my people. And I am sending you to Pharaoh that you might deliver my people. And you know what his first response was? Oh, no. Oh, Lord, that's great. Wow, what an honor. I, I don't know what to say. He said, oh, Lord, I don't know about this. He said, I know these people. And they are a difficult and troublesome people. And they gave Moses trouble from start to finish. From the beginning to the last. You'll recall that the whole reason that Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land was why. Because those people drove him to such distraction. He lost his temper. temper, And he struck the rock and water came out. He loved his enemies. Paul loved his enemies. And they learned this. Because God loves his enemies. Because Jesus... Loves his enemies. At the right time, Christ died not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Do you grieve over great sinners? Or do you hope that they get exactly what they deserve? It's hard to grieve over an Osama bin Laden, isn't it? It is hard to grieve over a Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler or a Putin. But do you understand that Jesus Christ walked that long winding road to Calvary for people like that? Do you realize that your offense in God's eyes is just as great as theirs? See, we have a hard time seeing that. Because we don't see ourselves in that way. we do not grieve over those who are great sinners. But God does. Do you anguish over those who have great privileges? You know, we live in a very privileged society, and you're all rich. Now you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm not rich. Oh, yes, you are. By comparison to the vast majority of the world's populations, you are extravagantly rich. Uh, how many of you have ever been to Newport, Rhode Island? Some of you have been to Newport, Rhode Island, and perhaps you have visited some of the mansions up there in Newport. I, You know, I, I used to think that, you know, the Vanderbilt mansion up there, the Biltmore, and it's an impressive place, don't get me wrong. But quite frankly, the first time I stepped inside the Breakers, I thought, my gosh, I didn't think anything could be more impressive than the Biltmore. But the Breakers is like a veritable palace. and You wonder how in the world did these people live like this? Oh, it's so easy, even though you have much, to be envious of those who have more. Do you mourn over those who have much? Or do you envy them? Because Jesus said you actually shouldn't envy them. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You see, the poor recognize their need for God, whereas the rich generally don't. Anything they need, they can provide for themselves. That's why Jesus told that story about the rich man and the poor man. There was this rich man who feasted sumptuously at his table. And there was a poor man who sat at his gate longing for the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Jesus said, his body was covered with sores that the dogs came and licked. He said, well, both men died. The rich man went to Hades. And the poor man, who incidentally is named Lazarus, he's the only man in any of Jesus' parables that is named. Do you know that? His name is Lazarus, and Lazarus goes to paradise, to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man looks up and he says, Oh, he says, Oh, Father Abraham, send Lazarus down here to cool my tongue, just a drop of water, for I'm in anguish in these flames. And Abraham says, I'm sorry, there is a chasm that is fixed between where you are and where we are, and it cannot be passed. And that's when the man says, oh, well, then I have several brothers. At least send him to one of my brothers that they might repent and be saved. I had great wealth too, you see. And Abraham says, I tell you the truth. They wouldn't even believe if Lazarus came back from the dead. That's where the rich are. Do you envy the rich? You shouldn't envy the rich. You should have compassion, mercy for the rich. See, one of the ways you know that you are growing and maturing in the Christian life, my brothers and sisters, is when you begin to have compassion for those who are lost. It's when you can really sing from your heart and mean it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And your heart's desire is to share that saving message with others who are lost in sin and nature's night, lest they be separated from God for all eternity. That was the heart of Moses, the great champion of the Old Testament. That was the heart of the Apostle Paul, the great champion in the New Testament. Most importantly, it was the heart of Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Father, we... Pray that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would grant us the grace to see ourselves as we really are, just like those people down in the valley who create and worship calves, golden calves of our own making. Help us to see that what we deserve is the due penalty for our sin, which is death. We deserve to have our names blotted out of the book of life help us to understand that there is one who has stepped in and said, I am willing to be cut off, to be accursed for the sake of your people, if they might be delivered. Grant us the grace to understand that Jesus Christ became our substitute and he alone was able to make the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for our sins and for the sins of the whole world and then enlarge our hearts with a love for the lost, for our lost relatives, our children, our grandchildren, for our spouse, for our neighbors, for our enemies, that we might be more like Jesus whom we claim to follow. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.